0: and believed in him were sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory thank you Brittany you're
1: welcome right, let's continue in Ephesians Brandon started us off off Off, off, off. (laughs) Brandon started us last week uh, with sort of the introduction to the identity series. He laid the foundation and gave sort of an overview, the gist of what Ephesians is about and what this series is going to be about. So let's play off that, dig a little deeper. He went over the greeting we're going to jump into and focus on verses 3 to 6 in Ephesians. Ideally. And I'll try really hard to keep this under like two hours. Okay. Um, I have Brittany read the whole thought from one, one verse one to verse 14. And the reason is um, that's an entire unit of thought. It's encapsulating all of what Paul is trying to get at in Ephesians. So to just read verses three to six, will not give them their proper context and not give you the proper overview of what Paul is saying on the whole. So we need to take into account uh, 1 verse 1 to 14 and consider on the whole what it's saying. Because what I just noticed as I was studying uh, for Ephesians, something I picked up on in that little section that Brittany just read, is it's telling the biblical narrative. In a very concise format. Alright, uh, we just wrapped up the history series, and that was a whole uh, series telling God's story, His story, correct? And that took, you know, laying it out and laying it on really thick. You could go for 26 weeks, which we did, about God's story. But here in just 14 verses, Paul basically says the gist of the whole story in a paragraph. It starts, the paragraph starts before the foundations of the earth. So it starts pre-creation, right? And then it ends with glory, God's glory. And that's basically the summation of the whole story of God. From before creation then creation, then fall, then God's plan of restoration, then glory. That's the whole history series summed up quite concisely, right? Paul knew about our history series when he was writing Ephesians, duh. Alright, anyway, um, a problem that I want to pick up on as we look at what Ephesians has to say to us. And as this section is talking about us being predestined in Christ, being chosen before the foundation of the world, and everything that Paul lays out in this paragraph, in the basic gist, is he's wanting Jesus Christ to be the unifier of all things. Everything that we know of, and even the things that we see and don't see, Jesus Christ being the summation, the unification of all things, they are all summed up in Him. He is the fulfillment, the fulfillment. And, But something I want to identify in light of that, before we kind of dive into that, is does it seem right now that things aren't really united and even in the church that there are a lot of there's a lot of disunity there's a lot of discord there are issues and conflicts and problems and things that we see and dramas that get blown out of proportion to where people won't forgive one another does that sound more like the case? Well, then how is this all going to happen, the fulfillment in Christ that Paul is talking about? Because that is, if I'm honest, that is not something that I see or even see in the church right now. It's easy to look at the world and say, oh, yeah, I don't see it out there. But I don't even always see that in the church. So how do we reconcile that in light of what Paul is saying about Christ Jesus being the fulfillment and the unifier of all things? right here as he's talking to the ephesian church and here's an example of this and something i want to point out as we focus specifically on verses three to six uh, in this passage Uh, what might be the case if we start talking about predestination people might jump to the conclusion oh you're going to talk about calvinism right or you're going to talk about the raging debate that's been going on since the Reformation about Calvinism versus Armenianism. Well, let me tell you this this passage is not about Calvinism or Armenianism. However, I will say that Calvinism versus Armenianism debate is a great example of a causer of the discord that we that I just brought up that we've been talking about an example of the non unity within the church where people will literally break away from denominations. There will be church splits and church, drama conflict, all of this stuff over the issue of Calvinism versus Arminianism. And I always speak to both of those for just a second. What they are is systems of thought created by men to do their best attempt to make sense of what the Bible has to say to us, and they are literally both opposites, right? Calvin Calvinism says there is grace is irresistible. There is irresistible grace. Arminianism literally says no, 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 grace is resistible. Uh, Calvinism says. Jesus only died for the elect. His atonement is limited. Limited atonement. So that the atonement that he accomplished in dying on the cross only goes out to those who are the elect. On the other hand, Arminianism says, no, 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 it's unlimited atonement. He died for everybody. And so there's five points of Calvinism, five points of Arminianism, and they're literally mirror images of each other. Now, does that sound like a unified thought and authoritative truth that we can take in and act upon and let that define who we are? No. If you try to reconcile the differences of Calvinism and Arminianism and allow that to form your identity, you will have an identity crisis, right? Because the two are at odds. So if you think to yourself, man, I have to choose either Calvinism or Arminianism, you'll you'll have a challenge going through the rest of your life because you'll think you have to reconcile the two. Whereas, I'm going to say this, the two are man's best attempts to make sense of what the Bible is professing as authoritative truth. Now, if we don't say... Calvinism, Arminianism debate, that's going to form our identity, resulting in identity crisis. On the other hand, we can look, and I can assure you that we can look to the Bible and its authoritative truth and what it has to say. Because it is direct revelation from God. Found our identity upon that and not end up with identity crisis and be able to walk out our identities just the way that Paul lays out in the rest of Ephesians. Cool? So, this message is not about Calvinism versus Arminianism. It is about exactly what Paul is trying to tell the Ephesian church, which is, you were chosen before the foundation of the world. Got it? Alright, now let's talk about Ephesus real quick. Ephesus was a major urban area in its day. It was a big city, basically. Um, And it was a strategic point for Christianity in its day. So when Paul decided to spend time building up a church and establishing it in Ephesus, it was not by accident. It was on purpose. It was strategic. He had a vision, a purpose, a plan. And there was reason to why he spent that much time there. And he spent three years in Ephesus, help raising up the people, proclaiming the gospel, teaching them the truth, teaching them who Jesus is and also who Jesus isn't. And he spent three years there, and that's more time than he spent at any other church that he helped develop and plant in his day so it shows the importance of that and now the reason I think it was so strategic and Paul wanted a church right in the heart of Ephesus is because Ephesus was an urban center right now when we think about urban centers in our in our day and age and in our country we think about Places where international commerce happens, right? Think about places where there are international airports. So think about uh, Los Angeles. Think about New York City. These are major urban areas in our country. And, you know, there's, there's a handful of really big cities where there's international airports. We're in the heart of that city because it is a key location and it is a hub for commerce and everything. People will fly from around the world. International airport means it supports flights from worldwide, right? So people from China and Japan and England and France and all the major powers in our world, they will pass through that airport and they will bring with them pieces of themselves and their culture and their influence and the things that they've grown up with and things that have formed their identity and their worldview. Those will pass through these urban centers, the major urban centers. So Ephesus was just like that in its day. It was a major urban center where commerce happened, where merchants came, where thoughts were exchanged, where ideas from the east met ideas from the west. And they're like, how do we reconcile these? Oh my gosh. Um, That's a thing that happened in Ephesus. Now, Paul chose that location because in places like that, In places like Los Angeles, New York City, and other major cities, that is where culture is formed. And every other place in the world, uh, maybe behind by a decade or two decades, or depending how far removed they are from that urban center, the rest of the world basically follows in the footsteps of what happens in those urban areas. The urban areas are the trendsetters for what happens in the rest of the world. Then you've got the suburbs, right? And that's the area surrounding the urban areas. And they will follow uh, quickly in the footsteps And then you've got the rural areas and they will be, you know, two, three decades behind what is going on. They're behind in the information, the technology, the thoughts, the worldviews, the political ideologies, all of this stuff that is being pumped out of these urban centers. Uh, These other places kind of get it by, you know, effect. Uh, It just kind of flows out there gradually. So now when Paul is thinking... I need to get the gospel out there. What is his most strategic location to get the gospel out there? to, uh, you know, proliferate that idea, to get that lifestyle, culture, thought process, story. If he wants to get all of that out to every part of the world, where's the most strategic place for him to begin? Urban areas where culture is shaped and formed, right? So that's why he goes to a place like Ephesus. And that's where this begins to take root. Now, Ephesus was, again, strategic. It was also missionary. So they weren't just taking uh, a passive, lackadaisical Role in this getting the gospel out there like, oh, it'll happen when it happens. They were a missionary. They had a missionary mindset. Their goal, their purpose and their agenda was the gospel of Christ Jesus and telling the story of him that started before the beginning of the world, before its foundations and extends all the way to eternity to the glorious future that we will one day get to share in. So Paul raises up leaders, helps raise up a church, founds them in the truth of the gospel, founds them in a vision of who they are, what their life is about, by telling them the gospel story. Right? And how Paul was steeped in the gospel story. Although he hadn't been a Christian very long, right? Like what we would call like a born-again very long. Like he hadn't uh, been baptized and received the Holy Spirit and all this stuff for very long. This story, the gospel story, was not something new. It wasn't a new development that came out of nowhere. You know, like some new thing like an invention you know if i were to tell you guys 10 years ago about my ipad you would be like what the heck is an ipad right because the ipad is an invention it was something that was fabricated from human minds they conceived of it and then they thought of how they could actually literally build it and produce it and sell a bunch of them And that's what happened. So 10 years ago, nobody knew about the iPad. Now, everybody knows about the iPad, right? And lots of millions of people have them. The gospel was not an invention that came out of nowhere. Where if I referred to it 10 years ago, you wouldn't know what I was talking about. The gospel story instead is ancient. It was from before the beginning. And that was basically the basis of the whole history series. This story spans from eternity past to eternity future. Right? So, this God who existed before the foundations of the earth, before there was anything, when there was just him, existing in triune community. Think about that. He is a self-sufficient, a self-sufficient being. He is not a dependent being. It's hard for us to conceive of that because we are dependent beings. We're dependent on resources and relationships. You know, like think about isolation. Isolation for humans is punishment, right? What, what happens when a kid gets in trouble? You put them in time out, <laughs> cast them out from society, go stand in the corner, right? <laughs> and like uh, the grown-up, more severe version of that, in a prison, when an inmate acts out and is unsafe to be around other inmates, what do they do with them? Yeah, solitary confinement. You're left alone with your thoughts, 24/7. That is the ultimate form of punishment. What does that say about us? I don't know. There's lots of, yeah, I don't even know. Crazy stuff, right? Being alone is a punishment. We are dependent beings who need love, need relationships, can't exist without oxygen, sleep, and food. Right? We, we don't make it very long on our own self-sufficiency. However, the creator God, before there was anything, was self-sufficient, independent, and in need of nothing at all. Within himself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the Trinity, he had mutually respective, mutually loving, submissive community in himself. So that when he, when he created us, it's not like he created us because he needed something. He desired an object for his affection, And beings who existed to bring him glory. See? Now, that's eternity past, before the foundations of heaven and earth. Right? Then we know the Genesis account. uh, The Creator God creates. He said, Let there be light, let there be land. Uh, he goes through the whole creation and six days rests on the seventh day and he creates out of nothing this brand new world this creation that is uh, you know he created it out of nothing and before this before he created world populated it with birds in the heavens fish in the sea, animals on the ground, men in his own image, before he created that, before that existed, he chose us. That's when he chose us. He chose us before we existed. And when he chose us, he chose us what we were going to be predestined for, what we were going to be made and created for. So when people ask this, you know, raging debate, like, well, is God sovereign or does man have free will? Are you hear me? Uh, yes. <laughs> that, that's not a question. That's a question that we think is a problem in our mind, but that's not really a problem in God's reality. Right? So when people ask that question, well, you know, Is it us choosing by faith to believe in God or does he just make little robots? Well, I don't think he makes little robots, but before we existed, he chose us and we can't choose something before we literally exist. How can we do that? If we don't exist as a person, how could we choose something? Instead, before we were people, he chose us in him. Right? And the story progresses, man falls, all of a sudden heaven and earth become in rebellion against God. There is this fighting struggle, the earth is cursed, man falls under the curse. Um, you see all of a sudden the raging battle between good and evil. And not only is it man and uh, creation who becomes a part of this rebellious problem, but it's heaven too. It's Satan and his angels. The seen, which is on earth, and also the unseen, the powers and principalities, also in rebellion against God. And, you know, they they tempted creation to fall out of relationship and into rebellion against God. So, this is the case now. What was once created perfect, that God created, stepped back, and at the end of six days of Creative work, he says, it is good, is very good. right? Even us, when he creates man in his image and likeness, he steps back and goes, it is good. Man is good. That's called original righteousness. Before we fell, a state that only Adam and Eve have ever experienced was original righteousness. Complete perfection, no discord between them and God, Perfect union, communion, relationship, perfect unity with themselves and their marriage. There was no hostility in this relationship. Now all we know is relationships that are hostile and they only exist because of grace and forgiveness, right? Could you imagine this state of original righteousness? Yet we fell, we rebelled. Heaven rebelled and all of creation, seen and unseen, heaven and earth, is now shattered into a million pieces, unable to put its own self back together. Well, then you ask the question, who is capable of putting this shattered creation back together, putting the pieces back together, reuniting it, And the story goes on, and we see figures raised up in history that are foreshadowing Christ. These kings, and these prophets, and these priests that are Christ-like figures to the people. But they in themselves are not the fulfillment of everything in the unification of heaven and earth and all of history. They are not the fulfillment. They are pointing to the fulfillment. They are not the king of the kingdom themselves. They are previews. And then the story reaches this epic, dramatic climax. Christ himself, who is the fulfillment, walks up the Calvary road to the cross, bears the sin and the shame, and becomes the one who was capable of of putting everything back together because he is the creator he is the Lord he is the redeemer and the all powerful God who in his own ability has the is capable of putting these pieces back together right and so now Paul after the fact this epistle is written after Christ uh, does the uh, the act of being on the cross bearing our sins Christ is then resurrected and this is key we can't forget about the resurrection we can't say it's all about the cross and his dying and neglect the resurrection and likewise we can't do the other only focus on the resurrection neglect the power and importance of the cross we have to incorporate both into our understanding of what it means to be a Christian. right? The cross means our sins are gone forever. The resurrection means death into life. right? So this story of creation being scattered, broken, and dead in its trespasses has hope because there is one person who conquered death and is the first fruits of other people who will in him by his power have the ability also to be resurrected crazy right bringing life out of death that's resurrection and now the church is this community of believers who like Paul We're steeped in this story. Like I said, this wasn't an invention. This was an ancient story. And Paul was steeped in it because it was the story of Israel. It wasn't a new story out of nowhere. It was the story he'd grown up with. He was a Jew of Jews, right? He was a Pharisee of Pharisee. He was from the tribe of Benjamin. When it comes to being a Jew, Paul had like top marks, Yet he says, I count all that nothing for the sake and worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For that is far better. Because keeping the law the way he did, he could do that in his power. But knowing Christ Jesus his Lord, he couldn't do that in his power. He couldn't know Christ unless Christ revealed himself to him. So this ancient story that's told from before the beginning until glory. Paul is saying this story that I've grown up with. I now can make full sense of it. It wasn't just about me and it wasn't just about the Jews. It was about the church and future glory. Because the church is where in Christ everything is united Jews and Gentiles. Right? In the Jewish understanding of the story, they didn't fully comprehend it. They didn't accept Gentiles. Yet now, these two people who are completely opposite, they are now brought together in Christ. Right? And then in verse 10, it says, At the fullness of time. So time, when it's ripe, is unified in Christ through his resurrection. Right, All the events of history, all the way back here from before creation, and then if you look at the threads of every story that's ever been lived and told, all of those threads meet their fulfillment, culmination, and unification in Jesus Christ. History is about Jesus. The world is about Jesus. You and I live for Jesus. Whether we choose to continue that rebellion that everybody else has foolishly lived with, or whether we choose to accept his life, death, and resurrection, and make that our own story. That's what identity is all about. Understanding what the world is about, and in light of that, Understanding who we are. And once we discover our own identity that is founded on the gospel story, then we too can live in a community right here called the church. Holding one another up, doing some teamwork. Not being at odds with each other because we know what resurrection is about. We, we know what death to life is about. And we can be a community and a church that is known for resurrection. That is known for bringing life into, as Eugene Peterson places, as Eugene Peterson says it, bringing life into a place where death gets the biggest headlines. Death of people, death of families, soldiers. Uh, huge catastrophes, death of marriage, death of society, death of morals and values and everything going down the tubes. That is not our story. That is not our story. Our story is a story of life and of resurrection. That's what our identity is founded on. And if we choose to found it on death, then everywhere we look, we will see death. And how are we to have hope? When everywhere we look, we see death. Instead, we are a community, a group, and a people who believe this ancient story from before the beginning. And we, we when we look around the world and see brokenness, death, broken marriages, broken relationships, broken governments who just don't understand what this world is about and don't understand the hierarchy and that there really is a king of the universe who can put the world back together more so than any other government or our human attempts to put things to bring order to them. When we look at those things because we've seen and tasted resurrection in Christ, we don't have to look and just see death. We can look out there and see the opportunity for life. Then the responsibility is on us to bring that life outward. That's us. That's the church. So the story that Paul knew, the story that he told the Ephesians, the story that is still for us today, the gospel story. When people have believed in the gospel story They have been brought from out of death into life. That's who we are. That's who you is. Got it? Tree of life. Be who you is. All right? Go out in the world and be who you is. If you don't know who that is, got to learn the story Come let's pray dear lord thank you that you have chosen us you have predestined us thank you that before anything was created before the foundation of the world you chose us because you loved us And Lord, even though we rebelled, and even though we believed a different story, and even though we walked around with our backs turned to you, God, you still pursued us. And even when we sought death, you sought life for us. Even to the point of entering into your own creation making yourself sin for us and dying so that we can have life but you are the God who brings life out of death and we firmly believe that story so God live in us by your Holy Spirit dwell in us cause us to will and to do Your plans in this world help us to found our identity on who you are and what you've done. And as we discover that, we are chosen heirs. Let us live that out wherever in this world we find ourselves.